Hey guys, we're back with another episode of 1600 Pen, the DP's politics podcast. I'm Caroline Simon, and this week I'll be joined by Ari Goldfein, who also works for the podcast. Hey everyone. If you've been on campus over the past few months, you've probably heard about a couple of really horrifying preachers who came to campus and spouted out their bigoted views. You're going to hell, make it split, woman. <laughs> they hung out on Locust Walk for hours each time they came, and each time students responded by protesting. These preachers were harassing specific students and pretty aggressively spewing hate. Their presence calls into question the balance between their right to be on campus and the students' right to feel safe, especially women and LGBT students who are being directly targeted. For a lot of the students who were there, the hateful language cut really deep. A lot of them protested for hours and had some direct interactions with the preachers. Becca Van Skyver was one of those students. We always alienate people who say dickish things and like assume that they truly are dicks, but oftentimes if you have a reasonable conversation with someone, they'll come around. This guy, not the case. He was super rude. He was yelling racial slurs and homophobic slurs and talking about how everyone was going to hell, and a few students tried to like engage him personally, and I don't remember his exact quotes, so I don't want to misquote him, but I know that he called me a dyke and that made me angry. Becca explained some of the ways Penn students tried to intervene and engage with him and how it didn't work. Other people tried to talk to him reasonably, and he and I exchanged a few words, but he was, I don't know, I feel like there's a difference between, sort of like the difference between a conversation in real life and a conversation on Facebook. Like, I think that there was a performative element Mm -hmm. to his, like, demonstration, and so I don't think that he was that interested in engaging with people one-on-one unless he was, like, yelling at them and saying negative things to them. Like, there was a student who came up to him, multiple students, actually, who were like, I'm Muslim, and it says on your ban that, like, Muslims are going to hell. Like, I don't understand that. Like, why do you think that? Can you explain that to me? And he would just start, like, yelling, like, vitriol. These preachers are allowed to be here. They're allowed to say whatever they want to students unless they're somehow making a direct threat. And even though they're not affiliated with Penn, they're allowed to take over Locust Walk for an afternoon. Their speech can be pretty harmful, but it is protected. Claire Finkelstein, a professor at Penn Law who's been involved in the administration's policy towards open expression, Explain to me why they're allowed to say what they're saying. Locust Walk is a is a public um, a pass through mm-hmm. on on uh, in the middle of a private university campus, and so the ability to limit speech on Locust Walk uh, is different from elsewhere on campus because it is technically not. Um, not part of Penn's campus, mm-hmm. but a public, yeah, a public throughway. Space. And um, the university, uh, you know, this is, a, this is a tricky issue, but the university cannot um, limit public speech on public um, walkways. Not only is the university prohibited from limiting free speech in areas of public accommodation like Locust, but if your aim is to reduce the prevalence of hate speech, Banning may be counterproductive. The idea of limiting speech is usually the wrong way to go on these issues. The antidote to traumatizing open expression is more open expression, not less. So that the university has to, and and faculty at the university have to help students to absorb the impact of speech that may upset them 
Finkelstein argues that sometimes being exposed to this kind of bigoted material is necessary to becoming an educated member of society who can ultimately work against the bigotry in more constructive ways. But it's critical that we provide a, um, as I keep saying, a framework or a whole, a safe um, way of uh, absorbing the impact of open expression uh, that is consistent with the university's educational mission. So students, for example, ought to understand that sometimes being exposed to traumatizing material is an important part of their education. However, we have to be aware, just as a parent would, in um, having their children be exposed to difficult uh, events in the outside world, we have, to, we have to allow students to feel safe enough that they can learn from the workings of open expression. Students like Becca actually agree. Even though Becca was hurt by some of the things the preachers were saying, she fought back by protesting. <laughs> I just think the claim that people who are gay or people who are of a different religion or people who are a different color like are less worthy of rights is absurd. So that should be responded to with absurdity. So like I made a sign that said butt sex on it and started dancing around because honestly like he was making people cry. Like I was watching students mm -hmm. come up to him he was yelling at people. He called me a dyke. That was why I got really mad. And I, like, came back here, and I got my shit, and I, like, angrily made a sign and, like, ran back. <laughs> I just, like, I feel like people should have left that situation laughing instead of crying. So I was just, like, Well, what were some of the things he was saying to people? Because I've he heard some He was just being really aggressive. Like, I don't know. It's tough in situations like that, whether or not you're supposed to engage with the person. I yeah. think, like, yes, if you can and if it is safe for you, which is, like, why I think allies are so important. If you can and if it is safe for you, you should converse with the person in like a reasonable way and try to get on their level. Just because like a lot of times if you have a human conversation with people, you'll be like surprised how like human they also are. According to Finkelstein, the fact that we've gotten more aware of how hate can affect people is a good thing. But that doesn't mean we should try to shut it down. How can the university do a better job of preparing students to bear the slings and arrows of the impact of open expression. Um, one of the concepts, uh, you could say that we have been in a kind of um, trauma culture for the last, you know, five to ten years where um, many, many groups, many individuals have become more aware of the workings of trauma than ever before. So we understand, for example, in the military, the, the concept of PTSD has become a much clearer concept. For sexual assault survivor, the survivors, the concept of um, post-traumatic stress disorder in the wake of a sexual assault has become much clearer. So in some sense, we've become a, um, we, we've all been very focused on the way trauma works. Why do you think that is in the past five to ten years? It's very interesting. I don't sure know. It does represent <clears throat> a kind of progress in uh, psychological awareness around sexual assault. I think that ha I think sexual focusing on sexual assault in the military is one of the things that has been the drivers of this because we really saw movement from focusing on sexual assault in the military to sexual assault in. Um, on college campuses, uh, and the um, impact of that, um, of the enormous prevalence of sexual assault and the prior underestimations of its prevalence uh, have then led um, uh, university leaders.
to start looking at the psychological needs and the psychological impact of, of surviving um, traumatic experiences like sexual assault. Uh, and that has in turn fed back into veteran communities who are looking at uh, combat trauma and so on. But there's a point that I wanted to make here, which is that um, we're now starting to see a little bit of post-traumatic awareness on a concept that we could call resilience. And I think it's very important that that concept make its way into university communities. We remiss as educators yeah. if we did not help students prepare for the onslaught of different ideas and forms of speech that they will encounter post-graduation. Mm -hmm. There is simply never going to be as nurturing an environment for them with regard to safety around speech as they encounter here at the university, even without trigger warnings and all the things that they would like to <laughs> see. So the question in my mind is not how do we get students to give up on wanting safe spaces, because that's not what I think our role as educators should be. What I think our role as educators should be is helping to cultivate, number one, an understanding of respectful exchanges of speech so that we are teaching students who are engaging in open expression um, at the limits of what it can bear, how to do so respectfully, number one. And number two, on the other side, how to cultivate grit and resilience among students uh, who feel assaulted by the workings of open expression, so that instead of feeling flattened by it, they can feel empowered. We also spoke to Allison Sands and Jenna Harowitz, a couple who helped protest the preachers. Oh, like, he was—he yeah, said I didn't look like a lesbian, and I was like, "Okay." And so then I kissed her, and everyone cheered, and he was like disgusted. <laughs> it was great, <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, like I—I I definitely understood the people who were saying that like you shouldn't engage him because that's what he wants and right. that's what he's there for. But also, it's really hard to just stand there and not because you—you yeah. you want to fight back, I guess. And at the same time, it's kind of fun to like like argue with him there was the second group that came that had um there's like the husband and wife that were talking and the wife i was there when the wife was talking at some point and she was talking about how like you need to you know make sure you're taking care of your man and like your job as a woman is not to be here going to college but it's to you know get your ass home and cook dinner and yeah. she's like i have dinner ready for my husband every single night because i'm a good christian woman free speech has been a pretty big issue on college campuses over the last couple years in 2015, there were huge protests at the University of Missouri and Yale involving free speech, and a lot of speakers have been disinvited from speaking at college campuses because students disagreed with their views. The Pet Administration generally gets pretty good reviews for, for protecting free speech. They send people called open expression monitors to protest to make sure that nobody's free speech is being limited. And a couple of years ago, they founded an initiative called the Campaign for Community. Professor Finkelstein was involved in founding it. There was a very strong feeling that it was actually necessary for these issues to be openly uh, discussed on campus, but to do it in a way that was safe and made
people feel that there was a, a framework for holding difficult conversations. The Campaign for Community aims to create room for respectful discussion about tough issues by hosting events and funding projects. Finkelstein explains why that's important and the complicated nature of free speech. So free speech, of course, as we all know, is a double-edged sword. Um, it's essential to protect it, but it can harm and it can hurt. So the idea is not to limit free speech in attempting to protect uh, around those sensitivities, but to try to um, make sure that when free speech happens in a university and when its negative impacts are felt, it is felt in a caring, supportive environment. Becca agrees that Penn should create spaces where people can engage freely, but she's not so comfortable when these preachers are telling individual girls that they should be raped. She said it's hard to figure out where Penn as an institution should get involved. What is Penn as an institution's role in free speech mm -hmm. like that? And I think that's a much more complicated issue. Yeah. I feel like on like a baseline level, people should not be allowed to say, like, you should get raped. Like, that's probably not super constructive dialogue. No one should get raped. It's awful. Mm -hmm. But like... I don't, it's tough. I don't even know that I have an opinion on, like, what Penn's role should be in yeah. terms of, like, I feel like Penn should try to create spaces that allow discussion, yeah. mm -hmm. but I don't know that anyone should be trying to, like, make a lot of rules about what can and can't be said. As long as, like, well, nobody is supporting, like, criminal action or, like, the, like, anything bad happening to anyone else, like, as long as people aren't using hate speech, I feel like free speech is great. The meaning of free speech in the political sense has actually changed quite a bit. Stefanos Bibis, a criminal law professor who's argued six cases in front of the Supreme Court and chaired Penn's Committee on the Open Expression, gave me his take on the history of the issue. I think free speech is always a, a difficult value to defend. And 50 years ago, it was you know more liberal students who were protesting the Vietnam War who had to fight for protection so that they could protest the Vietnam War, but the administration had to lay some ground rules so they couldn't use violence, block classrooms, disrupt classrooms, etc. In the last 25 or 30 years, as uh, progressivism or liberalism has become more ascendant, uh, it's often, and conservative students have become much more of a minority on campus, it's often been the, the conservative minority that has felt like it, it has to fight or push back in order to to, to speak freely, and there are lots of students who take offense or umbrage at some things that conservative libertarian students say or the speakers that they want to invite. And so at Penn, there's been a, you know, a, a back and forth that our, our Vice Provost for University Life Office has managed pretty well. But the challenge is finding ways not to shut down offensive speech, but to empower students who don't like the speech to offer counter speech and their own viewpoints so that we have you know, more expression and respectful debate, debate and that it stays, you know, nonviolent uh, and, and, and civil. A couple weeks ago, an incident involving free speech on a college campus caught the media by storm. Right before a planned appearance by right-wing commentator Milo Yiannopoulos at UC Berkeley, masked agitators joined student protests and caused hundreds of thousands of dollars in damage. To a certain extent, Milo is a bad example of the free speech debate. This isn't about the promotion of an open dialogue or exploration of different ideologies, but a self-described provocateur getting the attention he's looking for. I talked to Maria Bieri, the former editor-in-chief of The Statesman, Penn's right-leaning blog. She told me about how it's frustrating to watch people like Milo Yiannopoulos become the symbol of the conservative free speech movement. 
you know, I will never say that, like, Milo doesn't have the right to say what he says. You know, I don't like everything he says. I cringe at some of the things he says. But um, it is frustrating that he is, like, our symbol because Milo's not even conservative. Like, he'll tell you himself, I'm not conservative. Like, but people just, like, hold him up as this, like, conservative beacon that we should all, like, aspire to. But, like, that's not what we stand for, and that's not the kind of... That's not what we're... When we say free speech, it's... We have to approach it in the right way. Um, of course, on like, Milo has that... It's between, like I said before, it's between what we should do and what you have the right to do. Like, Milo has that right, but should he, you know, get up there and, like, literally just pro... Like, make people insane... Um, like, on purpose? No, he really shouldn't do that. That's not really helping his cause. It's not helping the conservative cause at all. I spoke to Aaron Hanlon, now an English professor at Colby College, who recently wrote an op-ed for the New York Times about his experience as a conservative on a college campus. He spoke of his own experience as a leader of the conservative movement and how, at the time, he claimed his own oppression, and his movement had a tendency to borrow language of the multiculturalist left or feminist activist groups. While he acknowledges the courage it takes to be an open conservative on a liberal college campus, his op-ed advises against conservatives posturing themselves as victims whose speech is oppressed. When I interviewed him, he went a step further than Maria and argued that trying to shut down Milo shouldn't be equated with shutting down free speech because Milo isn't interested in exchanging ideas or participating in dialogue. He's looking to provoke. You know, I think that if our goals on a college campus are, are primarily teaching and learning um, and developing understanding and wisdom of a, a number of sides of an issue, uh, then it's, it's a good idea for the people we invite, the speakers we invite to campus to reflect that. Um, so instead of inviting speakers whose objectives are to, or to cause controversy and outrage and to insult and offend and inflame, we should look to invite people who more fulfill our objectives of, of teaching and learning um, and uh, you know, a higher level and a more productive level of, of political discourse. Bebas talked about how fringe right figures like Milo have gotten all this attention because mainstream conservative figures on other campuses have been disinvited from speaking. He thinks that if people on college campuses are more open to hearing the ideas of reasonable conservatives who actually want to have a dialogue, people like Milo wouldn't be such a big deal. What's happening now in America is we're no platforming mainstream figures like Christine Lagarde and Condoleezza Rice. And as a result, what do we get? We get Milo Yiannopoulos, who's a provocateur going around campus trying to get himself no platformed. And people on the other side are doing the favor of shouting him down and making him into a martyr. I'd much rather have mainstream figures being treated respectfully than get such offensive treatment that you're dignifying the fringe right. And that's what's happened. Conservative students on college campuses often worry that their views are being shut down because they're an ideological minority. However, Professor Hanlon argues that conservative students attempt to adopt the language of actually oppressed groups, be they racial minorities, religious minorities, women, are misplaced and not terribly productive to improve discourse and the exchange of ideas. Maria, to a certain extent, also addresses this and how it feels to be an ideological minority. Unlike some college um, conservatives, she refrains from claiming her own free speech is being violated by the university. Even though we have these really great, like, Penn has these really good policies towards free speech, 
I think there's a problem with our culture here at Penn as far as free speech goes. So Maria doesn't think that anybody's free speech is actually being directly limited. She just thinks people need to be more respectful to conservative students who they disagree with. I think it's a, a two-way issue. Number one, conservative students have to stop being afraid. Um, you know, I, I can't say that I'm not uh, guilty of this, of, you know, feeling very intimidated in class and not wanting to raise my hand and, like, express a different viewpoint when I know that, like, I'm surrounded by liberals who are going to disagree with me. But we need to get over that. We definitely do. Um, I think a huge problem right now is, like, when, not all liberals, of course, but um, a large majority will look at you and think they're conservative and just kind of roll your eyes you and like kind of treat you with like contempt and like I don't have to listen to them because I already know what I know is right so <laughs> we need to get over that um and we need to start showing each other kind of some compassion towards e towards each other we all have a reason for what we believe in you know I was raised conservative republican um it, <laughs> being here at Penn in a liberal university it's not going to change like, if you give me a dirty look or you tell me I'm wrong or you uh, attack me on Facebook, it's not going to change anything. I'm still going to be conservative Republican. Like, I've, that's how I grew up. I'm not going to change. Um, you might make me move to the middle on something if you calmly and respectfully, you know, talk to me about it. But if you come and attack me on it, I'm probably going to move to the right. Becca is pretty ideologically different from Maria, but she also talked about how it can be hard being in the minority and how people should respect each other's opinions as long as those opinions aren't dehumanizing. Being a minority is really scary, which I think is incredibly ironic for reasons that I don't think I need to spell out. Um, I think that being surrounded by people who are disagreeing with you and argumentatively responding to you makes you feel incredibly defensive, and I don't think that it has been the pattern for rhetoric in classrooms to necessarily be as liberal as it is right now. Mm -hmm. I think oftentimes that inequality, uh, excuse me, equality stemming from inequality is perceived as like oppression to the people who used to have it a little bit better, the people whose voices were a little bit louder. So I don't know. I think that if people are are making character judgments on like their conservative friends. Like my dad's conservative as hell. I think that his opinions are fine and perfectly well educated. I don't always agree with him. Like I don't think people should be demonizing each other for their opinions yeah. unless your opinion is that someone else is less of a human being than you. Free speech can be a complicated issue. People like Milo and the homophobic preachers on Locust have a legal right to be here. Clubs have the right to invite them and individuals have the right to protest them. However, if you're truly interested in the exchange of ideas and promoting free speech, your aim shouldn't be bringing in people who just attack the other side. It's not discourse, it's animosity. It's looking to hurt others. It corrupts the ideals of free speech. And claiming that negative reactions to extremists limits free speech kind of misses the point. But we shouldn't be silencing people who just have different views than we do, as long as it's discourse and not a direct threat. Beavis thinks the best thing to do is respect them and hear them out. There are professors of all different political persuasions here at Penn. There are students of all persuasions. There are staff members of all persuasions. Go talk to some of the staff for some time, right? Do they, do they count any less because some of the people who work on campus have 
different views from, from, from you or from me. I, I don't think so. I think everybody deserves respect, and you can believe they are profoundly wrong and mistaken without silencing them. Free speech has gotten increasingly political recently, especially on college campuses. But it doesn't have to be that way. Conservative and liberal students at Penn think it's important to just hear each other out. Navigating the line between free speech and feeling respected can be hard, but as long as we listen to each other, we can figure it out. Thanks for listening to this episode of 1600 Pen. This episode was hosted by me, Caroline Simon, and Ari Goldfine. It was produced by Joyce Farma, and Stephen Damianos was our intern. The theme music was provided by Andrew Ellis. We won't be releasing another episode until three weeks from now because of spring break, but be sure to tune in then. If you have any questions or comments, shoot us an email at podcasts at the dp.com.